0: I am the door, I am the good news to the bound and the poor. for Abraham.
1: Welcome to church this morning. We're so glad that you're here. Would you stand with us, please? I want to tell you a little story this morning as we begin our service. You know, these are tough times, and we've all got our issues that we're dealing with through these times. But I want to tell you a story about a man named Joseph Skirbin. He was an Irish man, pretty well off. He got engaged to a woman, and right the day before they were to be married, he was bucked off of a horse riding across a bridge and drowned in the water. So Joseph was very distraught. He watched this from the other side of the bank. And then he went to traveling. He ended up in Port Hope, Canada, where he met another young lady. He was 25 years old. Before they could marry, she died of pneumonia. So he had a, it was really a rough time for Joseph. He just committed his life to serving the poor and the sick. He gave his own clothes to clothe those around him who didn't have clothes. And so he spent his life doing that. But his mother got ill. He wanted to write a poem that would kind of give her encouragement and help. And it was really the story of his life. And it really should be the story of our life as well. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs, griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Let's do that through these days. Let's take it all to him. Lay it down at his feet. What a friend we have in Jesus.
2: to this. What a beautiful name it is, the name
3: name he is and it is aren't you glad to be in the house of the Lord this morning let's just give God glory now like last Sunday was our first Sunday back since our little uh, three Sundays in June and uh, those on the staff the ministers we had all uh, turned in if we thought we'd have more present same number less whatever and uh, two of us said we'd have more and the others said we'd have about the same and uh, last Sunday morning, I just left this service saying, well, my, my little other person and myself, we, we, we had more. Well, they tell me we had exactly almost within a number to the being the same. And I thought, how can it be? And, and I thought, well, what it was last Sunday, we were, we were scattered out more. Or you're eating much more at home, and you just look like we had more. I don't know which it was. Now, this morning we've either scattered out more or we've eaten more or whatever, but it looks to me like we've grown a little bit since last Sunday morning. But let's just give God glory to that. We're working on it. We're working on it. Now, if you're watching by streaming or any other social media, we're delighted you're watching. And uh, uh, we want you to get your Bible. And when John preaches, you follow along. And when we're singing, you just sing along And uh, we'll just trust the Lord that we're going to have a great, great first service this morning. Look forward to the second service. If you've not done so, you can go online on Friday. And the Sunday Bulletin, it's just a one one little side here. Uh, It is there, giving you some information that would help you. And one of the exciting things in the Bulletin for this week, is that we have the names of those who made decisions in the service last week. Actually, we see in the bulletin seven names. We had seven people. Actually, we had eight. We had one that stood up to be saved that did not connect with us yet. And we hope, we hope today they are going to be hearing me. If you're that one that stood up and trusted Jesus last Sunday that did not send that into to us. Now, here's how you connect, whether it's that decision or whatever. Just go online, fbp.org connect. Could we put that on the screen? There it is. So anytime during the service you, you have something to say to us or at the end when he gives the invitation, if you will just go online and pull up fbp.org connect, give us your name, contact number. Uh, this afternoon, one of the ministers will contact you. And on the telephone, we'll walk right through that with you. Last Sunday, we had eight that we know. Seven we had the names, and we are so excited about the fact that even though we can't have a come-forward invitation, and even though some are making connection with us that are not even in the room, nonetheless, uh, we are we're seeing people say there have been somewhere between around 35, maybe a little bit more, maybe a number or two less of people that have actually have joined our church or have been saved during this time, that is a very different time. Last Sunday, four saved right here, and we bless God for that. Now, I want to encourage you in your giving. Of course, we have these giving uh, stands or boxes or whatever we call them. You have a little picture of that you can put up. Uh, I'm looking at the screen. There it comes, a giving center. That's what we're calling it. And if you come in if you've not given during the week you can just drop your envelope in or drop your money in either one cash or if you leave do the very same thing now it's a different day in every way and it's sure a different day at the church like uh, after about two weeks into this I realized that our budget had become (laughs) had become very unimportant anymore because number one The majority of things in the budget we weren't able to do, and things we were needing to do and having to do, they weren't in the budget. And I thought the budget is no longer the issue, the issue is the gifts each Sunday, and then the, what we need to pay for in the coming week many of us remember when we were first married and we were younger and some of you maybe even today we had envelopes and you would put money in the envelopes you'd put money for food and gas and various things and and in those days when your envelopes were all empty you quit doing what would y'all please participate yeah, you you don't even want to say it. it was, my grandfather taught me, it was a great financial plan. You When you run out of money, you quit buying. Wouldn't that be great in Washington? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good plan. Now that is how we're operating here at the church. In other words, God's people give on Sundays and during the week, much comes in during the week. And then the following week, we have missionaries to support, ministries to support. We have things we've had to pay for, or we've had to buy, we bought, and we've got to pay for. And so, really, we're kind of back in the old days. And so, what I'm saying to you is your giving each week is more important than it normally would be because it's just the week by week gifts. We take those and we say, okay, here's how we can do what we need to do this week. And God's people have remained faithful. And I just thank you for that. And I pray, whether you give online or you give by mailing your gift or bring it by the church or give now in these giving centers, that week by week we understand that that what we do, we kind of put in the envelopes, and the following week we say, okay, here's what we've got to do, and we start emptying those envelopes, and it works out every time. Not one week. Have all the envelopes been emptied and we've paid everything we owe and every commitment we've made. Bless God for that. Now, I want to have a prayer time with you this morning and here's, I want you to bow with me and here's, here's what I want you to do in this prayer time. There's just so much. I mean, we've got the pandemic. We've got two hurricanes out there that as of this moment look like they're going to go to the right of us, the east of us, that could change. We're gonna maybe get some water out of it. But I mean, that's been on our mind for the last two days. There are family issues. They're just, there are numbers of things that people are struggling with more than normal during this time. Families losing family members two funerals here one Friday one Saturday I have one in the morning so what I say to you this morning maybe everything with you is perfect I hope that would be the case but all of us I think this morning need to just ask the Holy Spirit to help us let Him put aside everything that could be worrisome to us. And at least for this hour with clean minds and clear minds, just worship God. Ask God to do that this morning for you. God, I can't speak for everybody, but I, I know my own heart. And there are just a lot of things that can be just heavy. And I, I'm asking you this morning, God, give us a freedom this morning. Just lift every cloud that could have any and all weighed down. And at least for this hour, God, let us just joy as we worship you. Heavenly Father, bless every gift that's given. God, bless every faithful giver. God, maybe some who can even give extra during these days, might the Holy Spirit put that upon their heart. But God, just bless us, and may we bless you in our obedience in every way. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: Amen. Would you stand with us, please? Let's raise a hallelujah this morning. Let's praise him this morning.
4: I raise a hallelujah in the presence of.
5: it's impossible to know for sure how many battles have been fought in the history of the world, but one thing is certain, there has never been a battle like the Battle of Armageddon. Human history is marching towards this battle, and everyone on the planet will be on one of two sides, either the Lord's side or the enemy side, the Antichrist side. And so today, I want us to think about the Battle of Armageddon. Now, I want to show you a picture of the Valley of Megiddo in northern Israel. This is a different angle from the one we saw last week, but this, nonetheless, is where the Battle of Armageddon will take place. And before we get very far into the message today, I want to give an overview of this battle, and I want to do that by making four statements. And I'm going to give them to you really fast, and so you probably won't have time to write them down, but just as I say these things, just think about it, and I think it will give us an overview And I think it will help us to be ready for what we're going to be studying this morning. First of all, the battle of Armageddon will take place at the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now, remember, the rapture of the church is not the second coming. In the rapture, Jesus leaves heaven, comes to the air. We meet him in the air. He takes us to heaven. When that happens, the tribulation begins on the earth. That will last for seven years. And so, for those seven years... We will be in heaven with Jesus, but at the end of those years, we will leave heaven and come with Jesus back to the earth. And so, the first coming of Jesus Christ happened when he was born in Bethlehem. The second coming will take place when he comes back to the earth, and that will happen at the Battle of Armageddon. Second thing I would say by way of an overview this morning is that this battle, the Battle of Armageddon will officially end the Great Tribulation. And so when the battle takes place, those seven years of suffering on the earth will be over. This will end the Tribulation period. The third thing I would say about the Battle of Armageddon is that it is the ultimate showdown between good and evil. It is Jesus versus the Antichrist. It is the true Christ, Versus the imposter Christ, the wannabe Christ, the antichrist. It is the ultimate showdown of good versus evil, God versus the devil. And then the fourth thing I would say is that good will win in the end. If that makes you happy, say amen. You know, good always wins in the end. No matter what you're going through today, in your life or in your family, I can tell you this on the authority of God's word. If you're saved, good will win in the end. Romans 8:28 always gets the last word. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose. And so good will always win in the end. In the day in which we live, so much evil taking place, so much wickedness in the world, and it just looks like that wickedness is winning and God is losing, but friend, that's not happening at all. God is setting it up, For one day, a great battle to take place, and in that battle, good will ultimately win. God will defeat the enemy, and evil will be eradicated from this world. Now, having said that, if you'll open your Bible this morning to the book of Revelation, we're studying this morning, if you're visiting with us or if you weren't here last week, that's fine. We're glad to have you, but this morning, we're studying the actual battle that will take place at Armageddon last Sunday morning we studied the background to this battle next Sunday morning I'm preaching a sermon entitled the aftermath of Armageddon but this morning we're studying the battle itself and what will happen in that Jezreel Valley the Valley of Megiddo there in northern Israel so if you're a note taker I want to give you some things to write down and we're gonna look up quite a few verses today But the first thing I want to say about the Battle of Armageddon is that when it takes place, the stage will have been supernaturally set. The stage for this battle will have been supernaturally set. And we spent our entire time last Sunday morning thinking about that as we thought about the background to this battle. We saw last week that God will dry up the Euphrates River, that great river that runs for 1,800 miles through many different countries. God will dry it up during the Battle of Armageddon. In fact, at this point when he dries it up, the river will have turned from water to blood, and at this time he'll dry the blood up, and the kings of the east will be able to cross that dried-up Euphrates River, and they will come to the valley of Megiddo. Not only will those kings be there, but the Bible says that the kings from all the world will gather. Many will bring their entire armies. Others will bring... A representation of their army, but the kings of the earth will come together in the valley of Megiddo, and God is the one who is supernaturally setting it up. Now, look in chapter 16. I want to show you a verse again this morning that we looked at last Sunday morning. Revelation 16 and verse number 16. The Bible says, And they gathered them together to the place called in Hebrew Armageddon. It's the only time in all the Bible that that word is mentioned. Revelation sixteen sixteen, the valley of Megiddo there, uh, just below Mount Carmel. And so the stage will have been supernaturally set. Now, it's interesting, God will use Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet to help assemble all these armies together. In fact... When you read what's happening, it looks like that the unholy trinity, Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet, it looks like they're the ones responsible for gathering all these people there. And yet we know that Satan is never ultimately in control. God is always in control. And so even when it looks like Satan is in control... He's only doing what God is using him to do. The devil is uh, God's uh, tool many times to accomplish his own will. It's an amazing thing. Where Satan rules, God overrules, and God uses the devil to accomplish his own purposes. Now, look in verse number 13 of chapter 16. John's having this vision. We saw this last week, but let's just look at it again. John said, I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. That's a reference to the Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet. For they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world. Now, what are these demonic spirits doing? Watch this. To gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. And so on the one hand, you have Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet. They're gathering all these armies to the valley of Megiddo. On the other hand, God, always sovereign, always in control, always running things, now he's using this unholy trinity to accomplish his own purpose to gather his enemies to this valley where the battle of Armageddon will take place. And so the point that we're making to begin with this morning is that the stage will be supernaturally set. Now, as this happens, as these kings from the east cross the dried-up Euphrates, as the kings of the whole earth bring their armies to this place, as that happens, the second thing I want us to see today is that the Antichrist himself will arise who is the antichrist he is a human being inspired and motivated by satan himself and yet he will himself personally come to this battle is the antichrist on the earth today Maybe so, probably so, we don't know that for sure, nobody knows but God. But if the rapture of the church is going to happen anytime in the near future, we know that the Antichrist is somewhere in the shadows today in all of his wickedness, in all of his evil, all of his satanic uh, filling, and he's waiting for his time to emerge on the stage of world history where he will deceive the nations of the world after the rapture of the church gather up his following, and uh, wreak, wreak havoc on the earth. But turn back in the Old Testament to the book of Daniel because I want us to see a little more specifically how the Antichrist will arrive in the valley of Megiddo. Daniel chapter 11. And I'm going to give you a moment to find this because this is a fascinating, fascinating passage of Scripture. And it gives us an understanding of what it is that will motivate the Antichrist at the end of the tribulation to leave where he is in one part of Israel, travel to the northern part, to that valley of Megiddo, for this great battle. So in Daniel chapter 11 and verse 36, and let me just say this, Daniel here is giving an Old Testament prophecy of the end Times That's what this much of the second half of the book of Daniel is about. And in this prophecy, when we come to the 11th chapter, he's talking about a king who was ruling on the earth at this time called Antiochus Epiphanes, but the reference to Antiochus has a double reference, and all Bible scholars that I'm familiar with would say this, and the second reference is yet a future event to the Antichrist himself. And so I'm not aware of any evangelical Bible scholar or teacher who would question that Daniel chapter 11 gives us a clear reference, a prophetic insight into the Antichrist. We can't read it all, but let's read a lot of it. Look in verse number 36. Then the king shall do according to his own will. He shall exalt and magnify himself above every god shall speak blasphemies against the God of gods and shall prosper till the wrath has been accomplished for what has been determined shall be done. So that's talking about the Antichrist. He's going to exalt himself and demand to be worshipped. Verse 37. He shall regard neither the God of his fathers nor the desire of women nor regard any God for he shall exalt himself Above them all. There's some who say that this reference about the Antichrist having no desire for women could mean that the Antichrist will be a homosexual. Some would say, well, it's hard to determine determine that just from that one reference. And I'm not sure what the significance of that would be. But it is nonetheless interesting. But in verse 37, he shall regard neither the God of his fathers. In other words, the Antichrist is not going to worship the God of heaven And uh, he wants to be worshipped himself, nor the desire of women, nor regard any god, for he shall exalt himself above them all. Now let's move down to verse 40 and get into the specifics of what is it that motivates the Antichrist to come to Megiddo. At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him. And the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind. And so as we said last week, by this point in the tribulation, those who have pledged their allegiance to the Antichrist are now convinced that they have made a terrible mistake. He has promised peace and prosperity, and just the opposite has happened. The judgment of God has fallen on the earth. The rivers and oceans have turned into blood. People are dying. The sun is not shining. The moon is not shining. The stars have fallen out of the sky. And so these leaders on the earth at this point in the tribulation are saying what the Antichrist has promised, he has failed to deliver. And so some of these kings apparently are now turning against the Antichrist himself. And it says they'll come against him like a whirlwind with chariots, horsemen, and with many ships. And he shall enter the countries, overwhelm them And pass through. So even though they rise up against him, he has more power than they do because he's satanically inspired. Verse 41. He shall also enter the glorious land, that is the land of Israel, and many countries shall be overthrown. But these shall escape from his hand, Edom, Moab, and the prominent people of Ammon. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall have power over the treasures of gold and silver and over all the precious things of Egypt. Also, the Libyans and Ethiopians shall follow at his heels. Now, watch verse 44. This is very interesting. But news from the east and the north shall trouble him. Now, what's happening in the, to the east and the north of where the Antichrist is? What's happening is all the nations of the earth are gathering to the valley of Megiddo. Well, it makes sense why this would trouble him because at this point, some of the other kings have already turned against him. And so now he's thinking, now all these who are gathering in Megiddo, they're turning against him. So now we see the paranoia of the Antichrist. Remember we saw in Revelation 16 that the Antichrist is responsible in part for gathering these armies to Megiddo. Now that they're gathering there, paranoia sets in, and he says, they're gathering there to fight against me because these other kings are coming against me. So as we saw last week, confusion and uh, and all these things now are setting in on the Antichrist. So verse 44, you ought to mark this verse. News from the east and the north shall trouble him. Therefore, he shall go out with great fury to destroy and annihilate many. Assuming that they are turning against him, he's now going to fight against them. And then in verse 45, he shall plant the, tent, the tents of his palace between the seas, that is between the Mediterranean Sea and the Dead Sea, and perhaps a reference even to the Sea of Galilee, and the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end, and no one will help him. And so Daniel is giving a prophecy hundred years before Christ was even born. Saying that at this point in the tribulation, the Antichrist will come to his end and nobody will help him. And so the point here is that the Antichrist, having heard of this rumblings from the north and the east, will be troubled by that and he's going to Megiddo. So that's the, next, the second thing I wanted us to see. The Antichrist will arrive. The third thing is that as the Antichrist now arrives, everybody else is already there. As the Antichrist arrives In just that moment, the true Christ will appear. Now, let's settle into Revelation chapter 19 because this is the classic passage in all the Bible about the battle of Armageddon. And now we see that as the stage has been set, as the Antichrist has arrived, it's time for the battle. It's time for the showdown. Good and evil are about to square off. And at this moment, the true Christ will appear. Notice I'm saying the true Christ as, as opposed to the Antichrist. The Antichrist is the false Christ. He is the instead of Christ. He is the wannabe Christ. He is the one who is jealous of Christ. He is the one who was in heaven many, many years ago as, a, as an angel, as, a, as an honored angel, as a beautiful angel. And as he was there and seeing all the other angels worship God the Father, worship Jesus the Son, he became envious of that. And he wanted to be worshipped himself. And pride rose up within Lucifer's heart. And God cast him out of heaven. A third of the angels were fallen with him. And so since that time, the Antichrist has opposed Jesus Christ. He's jealous of Jesus. Now look in verse number 11, the vision that John saw. He said, now I saw heaven opened. And behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called faithful and true. That's because God always keeps his promises. Jesus is true to his word. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. We don't think of Jesus as a judge. We think of Jesus as a savior, and he is a savior. But he's also a judge. And Jesus said in the gospel of John that God the Father has entrusted all judgment to him. And so at the end, it will be Jesus Christ who will judge. And so heaven is open. It's interesting. This is one of two times in the book of Revelation where, in his vision, John saw heaven opened. The first time was in chapter 4, verse 1, when he said, I saw heaven open. That's when John was caught up and taken to heaven. That's a picture of the rapture of the church. So at the rapture, heaven will be open. And here at the second coming for Jesus to come back, heaven will be opened again. Look in verse 19. John said, and I saw the beast, that's the Antichrist, the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And so, as the battle is about to start, we have the Antichrist and all his legions in the valley, and now we have heaven is opened, and Jesus is sitting on a white horse, and Jesus is about to leave heaven and descend for that valley of Megiddo. Now, as we think about Christ appearing As we think about the second coming of Jesus Christ, I want to give you some uh, descriptors, descriptors today, descriptive words that help us to understand how Jesus Christ will appear. And you might want to just jot these down. First of all, it's very important that we see that Jesus will appear visibly. He will appear visibly. John has this vision. He's seeing Jesus. He's on a white horse. Jesus is not sending a delegation. He's not sending an angel. And he's not coming invisibly. Jesus is appearing visibly. Now, at the rapture of the church, Jesus will only be seen by those of us who are saved. That's why there'll be such confusion on the earth after the rapture. Because the people who are left behind will not have seen what happened. It will be visible to us, but invisible to them. So the rapture of the church is not something that... That will not be a visible appearing to Jesus, to the world. Visible to us, but not to everyone else. But turn back to Revelation chapter 1. I want to show you a very important verse. You want to mark this. Revelation chapter 1, and in verse number 7... Let me let you find it. Revelation chapter 1, and in verse number 7... The Bible says, behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him. Say that part with me there. Every eye will see him. Every eye. The eyes of uh, the Antichrist the eyes of the unsaved, the eyes of all these people in Megiddo, the eyes of people all over the world who will not physically be in Megiddo at that time, every eye will see Jesus and they will know that he is the one they should have received and yet they have rejected him. Now watch this, even they who pierced him, even those Roman soldiers who put the nails in his hands, even that Uh, Those Jewish people, those religious Jewish leaders of that time who are responsible in a sense for the crucifixion of Jesus, they will see Jesus. These people will be in Hades at this time. They're long since dead. And yet from every eye, not just every eye on earth, every eye on earth, every eye under the earth in Hades will see him and they will know beyond the shadow of a doubt that the one whom they crucified, the one whom they turned against, the one whom they rejected was none other than God in the flesh, Jesus Christ. Every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him even so. Amen. You better believe they'll mourn. They'll mourn because they rejected him. They'll mourn because they crucified him. They'll mourn because they mocked him. And they'll mourn because now they will only meet him as judge. They could have had him as savior. He offered himself as savior. But that day's over. And now they will meet Jesus as the judge. And so the first thing is we think about how Jesus will appear. Jesus will appear visibly. The second descriptive word I'd like to give is simply this. Jesus will appear not only visibly, but Jesus in this great battle will appear triumphantly. He will appear triumphantly and victoriously. Look in verse number 12. Back to chapter 19 now. And in verse number 12. His eyes. Now, John is having a vision Of the very eyes of Jesus on this horse coming back to the earth. And yet he sees his eyes. His eyes were like a flame of fire. That is his eyes are penetrating eyes. His eyes can not only see us but they can see into us. And they can see through us to what is in our heart, our motives, our inner thoughts, our desires. His eyes were like a flame of fire. And on his head, now watch this, were many crowns. Not just a crown, many crowns. Why? Because he's coming back as the conquering king. He's he's triumphant. He's victorious. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. Now somebody says, what is this blood a reference to? Well, it could be a reference to the blood he shed on the cross. Most Bible scholars don't think it's that because they say in this context that doesn't seem to be what it's referring to. Some say that it's a reference to the blood that will be shed in the battle of Armageddon. But if you think about it, when he's first coming out of heaven, the blood hasn't been shed yet, so it's probably not the battle of Armageddon. Others say this blood that his robe has been dipped into is representative of the battles that Jesus has fought in the past with evil, and you read all the way through Old Testament times and New Testament times, where God did battle Satan, and he did put an end, in a sense, to certain forms of evil, and so maybe this blood... Is the blood from past battles that Jesus has already fought, but nonetheless, his he was clothed with a long robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. When I read that, and and when I read that, it takes me back to John chapter one, the very first verse: "In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God." And the Word was God. Jesus is the Word. And here it says His name is called the Word of God. And so Jesus is coming back, not only visibly, but He's coming back triumphantly. Now remember, this is the second coming of Jesus. To appreciate the second coming, you have to keep in mind the first coming. In His first coming, He came to Bethlehem. In His second coming, He's coming to Megiddo. Think about this. In His first coming, after 33 33 years on the earth, in his first coming, what did Jesus do? He rode a donkey into Jerusalem. At his second coming, he will ride a white horse out of heaven. At his first coming, he came in humility. At his second coming, he's coming to rule and to reign. At his first coming, you think about the first coming and the second coming of Jesus. At the first coming, Jesus came to serve. But in the second coming, Jesus is coming to conquer. In the first coming, Jesus came to offer salvation to all who would believe. But at his second coming, he is coming to judge those who have rejected him and whose sins have not been forgiven. And so there's a great difference between his first coming and his second coming. His first coming, humility. His second coming, majesty. He's coming now as king of kings and lord of lords. Make no mistake about it. That's who he was at his first coming. But at His first coming, He veiled His glory. In Philippians 2, we read about this. He laid aside His his royalty. That was all hidden. That was all veiled. But at His second coming, we will see Jesus Christ as He is. That's That's why when the Apostle John had this vision back in Revelation chapter 1 of the risen, exalted, Jesus, he said to himself, I've never seen Jesus like this before. When I saw Jesus, he was walking by the Sea of Galilee. When I saw Jesus, he looked like one of us. And with the exception of that experience on the Mount of Transfiguration, I never saw Jesus in this way. But now I see him with his eyes like fire. And I see him with his hair as white as snow. And I see Christ in his exalted, glorified state. And so he's coming back triumphantly. But let me say something else about how Jesus will return When he appears, he's coming not only visibly and triumphantly, but he's coming with a great army behind him. Now, look in verse number 14. One of my favorite verses in the Bible. As we read the description of how Jesus will descend from heaven and come to the valley of Megiddo, it says, and the armies of heaven, that's us, clothed in fine linen. That is representative of how faithfully we've lived our lives, white and clean, followed him on white horses and so when jesus leaves heaven we're leaving heaven too when that heaven when the door, when the when the windows of heaven or the doors of heaven or the gates of heaven are open and jesus descends we're descending too we're following jesus we're doing what we're supposed to be we will be doing then what we're supposed to be doing now and that is following jesus jesus will be on his horse And we will be on ours. We are that army in heaven that will be following Jesus out of heaven. And so he's coming with a great army. Can you think how many millions and millions of people will be in that army? It will be absolutely unbelievable. And if you're saved, you're going to be a part of that army. And then notice this. Jesus is coming. Not only visibly and triumphantly. He's coming not only with a great army behind him, but Jesus is coming to put an end to evil. Look in verse 15. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has a name on his robe and on his thigh, a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, notice at the end of 15, it says, he himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. Talking about how when wine was made, how there would be a great crushing Of those grapes and he's this is now being compared to his judgment turn back to verse to chapter 14 I want to show you another reference to this wine press the grapes had to be crushed and pressed in order for there to be wine that's why it's called a wine press and out of that crushing came the wine out of this judgment will come not wine but will come blood Because look what's going to happen. It says, and the winepress was trampled outside the city, and the blood came out of the winepress up to the horses' bridles. That's about four feet high for 1,600 furlongs, which equals 184 miles. Think about that. This battle is going to be so awesome, so cataclysmic, so destructive so inclusive so great that when when the sword of the spirit comes out of jesus's mouth which i believe is a reference to his spoken word hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 the word of god is living and active and sharper than any two-edged what any two-edged sword. And so when John says it, look at it again now back in chapter 19 and verse 15. Out of his mouth goes a sharp sword. Is it a literal sword? It could be. I understand it to be the sword. His word is the sword. And Jesus will speak the word. And the Antichrist and all these people in the battle will be destroyed just like that. And so destructive will be their demise that blood will fill not only that valley of Megiddo but it will fill 184 miles of Israel. That's basically from the north to the south, four feet high. Think about that blood flowing like a river, four feet high, 184 miles long. It is an amazing thing. And it is with his word that Jesus Christ is able to bring evil to an end. And as I think about that, I think about how powerful the word of God is. If you you think about the word of God, It is with God's Word. Four words in English, two words in Hebrew. We read it in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 3. The first words recorded by God in the Bible, let there be light. And there was light. God created this whole world. How? The Big Bang Theory? No, by speaking the Word. He spoke the Word and the world came into existence. You know, the Word of God is a powerful thing. Jesus on that Sea of Galilee in the midst of a storm and his disciples thought they were going to drown. Jesus spoke a word and said to the wind and the waves and the storm, Peace, be still. And the storm ended. There's power in the word of God. Jesus went to Lazarus' grave there just behind the Mount of Olives and Jesus, as Lazarus is lying dead in that grave, Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth. And what happened? A dead man came up out of that grave and he came to life. And at this great battle, this final battle, this ultimate battle, Jesus Christ will speak the word and the Antichrist and the false prophet and all who have followed them will be destroyed. And so great will be their destruction that their blood will be four feet high, 184 miles going along. There's power in the the word of God. How do you know you're saved? How do I know I'm saved? Because I feel saved? Well, you know, today I feel saved. But I don't necessarily always feel saved. I don't know that I'm saved because I feel saved. I know I'm saved because God's Word says I'm saved. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. I believe and I'm saved. How do you know that you're never alone in life? Because you feel people around? No. How do I know I'm never alone? I live alone, but I'll tell you this. I'm never alone. How do I know that? Because of the Word of God which says to me that God would never leave me and He would never forsake me. How do we know when we're going through chaos and trouble and difficulties in life that it's all going to work out for good because we hope it will or believe it will we have positive minds no we know it because of the word of god that all things work together for good to those who love god and call according to how do we know when hell itself when satan and his legions turn against us to try to disrupt what god would do in our lives how do we know that at the end of the day we'll be victorious because of the word of god which says that no weapon formed against us shall prosper. How do we know when we're going through deep waters in tough times that we're going to come out victorious on the other end? Because of the Word of God, which says that in Christ Jesus, God always leads us in triumph. Everything we know, we know because of the Word of God. There's power in the Word, so much so. So much so. So much so that at the battle of Armageddon, the spoken word of Jesus will bring an end to the evil that will have dominated this world up to that time. Now, it's interesting. Last Sunday morning, I got up. as I was talking about this series on Armageddon. And I said, well, I was going to preach one sermon on the battle of Armageddon. But I said to myself, well, it would be one long sermon. So I want to break it into two. In our worship meeting this week, Jimmy said, John... I'm glad instead of preaching one long sermon, you decided to preach two long sermons. Well, what he didn't know at that time is, I'm going to come back next week and preach a third long sermon. Because what I was going to do at this point in this sermon, which would have been in last week's sermon, which we never would have left before, had I done all, I was going to talk today about what will happen to the Antichrist and the false prophet. I've shown you what's going to happen to all the people in their army. They're going to be destroyed. I wanted to get into what's going to happen to the Antichrist and the false prophet and how they'll be sentenced to hell. But I want to save that next week, and I want to preach a sermon called The Aftermath of Armageddon. And I want to talk about the day when hell will receive its first two residents. And I can say this, and I'll say it again next week. I find no joy in preaching about hell, but it is in the Bible. And so next week, I want, I, I don't, I'm not going to say everything the Bible says about hell, but I want us to look next Sunday morning at what the Bible says about hell and how the Antichrist and the false prophet will be the first two people to go there. But that's next week's sermon. Today we're going to stop here about how at this moment Jesus Christ will bring an end to evil. Now you still listen? Say amen. amen. I've been to Israel seven times. My parents have probably been 15 or 16 times. So they've been many more times than I have. But I've been seven, which is not a small number of times. And I've been blessed on every trip. My favorite trip to Israel was probably in 2006, because on that trip, among other things, I got to be baptized in the Jordan River, and I wouldn't take anything for that experience. Very memorable in my mind, even to this day. Also on that trip, as was true of all seven trips, we went down into that valley of Megiddo, if we could show that picture one more time. And our guide was giving the lecture, as I referred to last week, and after he gave his lecture, my dad, as, was, as is typical, got up to give a, not a lecture, but a spiritual challenge. That's kind of what the role of, of the pastor on that trip is. It's not just to give you the history, the guide will give you the history, it's to preach a little three, four, five minute sermon, a devotional, to make it practical and memorable. On this particular day, my dad did what he's done the other times I've been in that valley. He said, He he explained a little bit about the battle. He said, One of these days, God versus Satan, good versus evil, the saved versus the unsaved. He said, Hopefully, everybody in our group saved. If not, be a great time to get saved. And many of our trips, we've had people saved in Israel. He said, But let's just assume we're all saved. We all know people back home who are unsaved. And if they don't get saved, that means. They're on the wrong side. They're on the losing side. So what I want us to do, I want us to scatter out all over this valley. And I want us to pray for our unsaved family and friends back home. And so we did that, not over the whole valley, but on the near side, on the south side of that valley. We just spread out a little bit and we began to pray for unsaved family members and unsaved friends. And I did that. And after a few minutes of praying for the unsaved to be saved, I I kind of just looked up into the sky there, into the heavens, and I began to use my sanctified imagination. And I began to imagine that day when the heavens would be opened, and when Jesus Christ would appear on that white horse, eyes like fire, crowns on his head, robe dipped in blood, King of kings and Lord of lords. And I began to think not only about Jesus, but I began to think about that great army that will be following him out of heaven and back to earth. And I began thinking about the fact that he would be on a horse and we would be on horses. And I'm trying to visualize what it would be like to fly on a horse from heaven to the valley of Megiddo. Now I have to tell you this, I've, I've spent much of my life growing up in the country, but I'm kind of a city boy who was in the country. And so I've ridden horses, and I've done okay on the few times that I've ridden horses. But I'm going to tell you this. I've never flown on a horse. <laughs> and riding on a horse makes me a little nervous. Flying on a horse scares me to death. And I got thinking not just about the apprehension that we might would feel. Of course, we won't feel a then. But, you know, now you think about it, what it would be like. I got thinking about that moment. And more than the horse part, I got thinking about Jesus. And how good he's been to me. And how he, good he's been to all of us. And how much I love him. And I said this to Jesus on that particular day, just silently in my heart. I said, Lord, on that day when this battle takes place and heaven is open and you leave and you're on your horse and I'm on my horse. I said, Lord, I just pray that my horse could be next to your horse. Now, when it's all said and done... I don't necessarily think my horse will be that close to his horse. I think Billy Graham's horse and Mother Teresa's horse and a bunch of widows' horses out there who've walked with God and have been better, you know, more devoted in in their prayer life and everything. I think they'll probably, but but nonetheless, I just said, Lord, not so that other people would notice and say, because I don't even think that, at that point, we won't even have any pride. I just thought this, Lord, I want my horse to be next to your horse because wherever you are, I want to be as close to you as I possibly can. Now, you know, as I've thought more about that, on that day, Jesus will decide whose horse rides where. We're his army, and he will put us in the proper rank. On that day, he decides who rides closest to him. But on this day, we decide. We get to decide how close we are to Jesus. And I can't help but believe that our closeness to him now will one day be reflected to our closeness to him then. And when he comes out of heaven, we'll say, Right on, King Jesus. Listen, in that battle, we don't have any guns. We don't have any knives. We don't have any weapons. All we do is follow Jesus, and he fights our battle for us. And I'm saying, if we'll follow him closely now, Just maybe on that day we can follow him closely then. Amen. Amen. Father, I look forward to that day. And I thank you that I know beyond the shadow of any doubt that I'm on the winning side. That I'm in the Lord's army. With your head bowed and eyes closed today, if you've never been saved, you need to be saved. Now is the time. If you don't get saved, there'll come a day from earth or from Hades that you will look up and see Jesus Christ on that white horse. And you will mourn. Because you rejected him. Don't be on that side. Be on the winning side. Pray this prayer right now. Say, Lord Jesus, come into my heart. Forgive my sins and make me a Christian. I ask you to save me. And I trust you to do it. I ask you to save me. And I trust you to do it. you prayed that prayer the Lord Jesus has just come to live in your heart he has just come to save you would you stand if you prayed that prayer would you stand right now just right where you're sitting would you stand so we can see you if you prayed that prayer would you stand people prayed it last week thank you ma'am God bless you who else prayed that prayer this morning who else prayed that prayer that takes great courage to do what you just did let's give this one a hand who stood who just been saved thank you ma'am Thank you, man. Others here today, we say we're already saved. Pray this prayer. Say, Lord Jesus, on that day, you decide who rides where. But on this day, I make a decision to follow you more closely than I ever have. And I ask you to help me do that. Pray that prayer. Christians all over. God, help me to follow you closely. Wherever you lead, I'll go. Wherever you lead, I'll go. For those watching at home and for those in this room, if you have a further decision to join our church, to talk to a minister about your next step with God, just go to that website that my dad mentioned, fbp.org connect, fbp.org connect. And give us your name and phone number and somebody will call you today. We'll pray with you and talk with you over the phone. God, there's been a good spirit. I felt it. Dad looked over at me during the singing, God, and said, there's a good spirit here today. And I already felt it. God, I thank you. The spirit of Jesus is in our midst. I pray these services will grow and grow little by little every week until, God, one day, relatively soon, we can see this room full of people being saved, full of people standing, full of people worshiping you. And this is our prayer in Jesus' name. And all the people said, Amen. Amen. Let's thank the Lord. Always great to study his word together. Awesome. Awesome day. Jimmy's going to come and and tell us how we're going to dismiss. We're going to keep trying to do this by sections. We're just trying to keep everybody healthy. Is Jimmy coming? Is he there? I'm here. I'm right here. All right, buddy. Tell us how we're going to dismiss. Are you glad to be in
1: God's house today. It's been a great day. Thank you for being here. Would you stand please? Ushers, would you come forward please right now? And then you just wait for your usher to dismiss your section. As we go, let's worship the Lord. I raise a hallelujah. We're going to praise him this morning. We're going to worship him this morning. We're going to sing to him this morning as we go from this place. Sing with us. I raise a hallelujah. Wait for your section.
0: of